Welcome to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring more than a half century's worth of devotionals and forums exploring the prophet's life and teachings. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Thank you, President Worthen. It's good to be with you today. Uh, I love BYU. It's where I attended school and met my wonderful wife and where all six of our children attended, one of whom is here today. The title of my talk is The Book of Mormon, Man-Made or God-Given. Because the Book of Mormon is the keystone of our religion as described by Joseph Smith, the Church rises or falls on the truth of it. As a result, if the Book of Mormon can be proved to be man-made, then the Church is man-made. On the other hand, if its origin is God-given, then Joseph Smith was a prophet. And if he was a prophet, then the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true. It is that simple. Once we have a foundational testimony of the Book of Mormon, then any question or challenge we confront in life, however difficult it may seem, can be approached with faith, not doubt. Why? Because the keystone of our religion, the Book of Mormon and its witness of Jesus Christ, has also become the keystone of our testimony. Which keystone holds our testimony securely in place? Thus, the Book of Mormon has become the focal point of attack by many of our critics. Disprove the Book of Mormon, and you disprove the Church and undermine testimonies. But this is no easy task. In fact, it is impossible because the Book of Mormon is true. Eleven witnesses, in addition to Joseph Smith, saw the gold plates. Millions of believers have testified of its truthfulness, and the book is readily available for examination. Critics must either dismiss the Book of Mormon with a sheepy shrug or produce a viable alternative to Joseph Smith's account, namely, that he translated it by the gift and power of God. What, then, are those alternative arguments presented by our critics for the origin of the Book of Mormon, and what is the truth? Argument one, Joseph Smith, alleged to be an ignorant man, wrote the Book of Mormon. In 1831, a clergyman named Alexander Campbell proposed that Joseph Smith wrote rather than translated the Book of Mormon. Quote, he said, There never was a book more evidently written by one set of fingers nor more certainly conceived in one cranium than this book. I cannot doubt for a single moment that Joseph Smith is the sole author and proprietor of it. He also declared that Joseph Smith was as ignorant and impudent a knave as ever wrote a book. But this assertion that Joseph Smith, who was, quote, ignorant, unquote, and lacked education, could write such a work as the Book of Mormon seems so preposterous to other contemporary critics that they readily dismissed it. Even Campbell himself, who proposed this theory, later abandoned it in favor of another alternative. And so the early theories about the origin of the Book of Mormon started to focus on the premise that Joseph Smith, an unlearned man, was simply incapable of writing such a complex book. After all, he was but 23 years of age, a simple plowboy from western New York, and he had little formal education. Consequently, the early critics concluded there must be some other explanation for the origin of the Book of Mormon than the unlikely possibility 
that Joseph wrote it. Argument two, someone else wrote it. Accordingly, some critics propose the theory that Joseph Smith conspired with someone who had the education, intelligence, and skills to write the Book of Mormon. One candidate for its authorship was Oliver Cowdery. After all, he was a school teacher, a scribe, and later a lawyer. But a major problem arose for the critics. Oliver never claimed to have written any portion of the book. In fact, he testified to the contrary. Quote, I wrote with my own pen the entire Book of Mormon, save a few pages, as it fell from the lips of the prophet Joseph Smith as he translated it by the gift and power of God. That book is true. End of quote. Even though Oliver was excommunicated from the church and it was some years before he returned, he remained true at all times to his testimony, even on his deathbed. As a result, this argument receives little acceptance today. Another candidate for authorship of the Book of Mormon was Sidney Rigdon. He was a Protestant minister and a theologian. The supreme irony of this argument, however, is that he was converted by the very book he was supposed to have written. <laughs> Party P. Pratt, a former member of Rigdon's congregation, introduced him to the Book of Mormon in October 1830, about six months after the Book of Mormon had already been published. Do we have any witnesses that this is how Sidney Rigdon was converted? We do. In fact, the historical evidence is compelling. First, Sidney Rigdon's daughter. Nancy Rigdon Ellis was eight years old when Parley P. Pratt and Oliver Cowdery presented her father with a copy of the Book of Mormon in their home. She said she recalled the event because of the conflict that arose. I saw them hand my father the book, and I am as positive as can be that he never saw it before. He read it and examined it for about an hour and then threw it down and said he did not believe a word in it. Later, however, he did accept the Book of Mormon, joined the church, and became one of its leaders. Second, Sidney Rigdon's son John spoke to his father as he lay on his deathbed. Father, you owe it to me and to our family to tell the truth about the Book of Mormon. In other words, this is the day of reckoning. Be totally honest before you go to the judgment bar. The son then recounted his father's response. My father looked at me a moment and a moment, raised his hand above his head, and slowly said with tears glistening in his eyes, My son, I can swear before high heaven that what I have told you about the origin of the book is true. After this tender moment, the son said, I believed him. Later, John joined the church, and thus another argument fell by the wayside. Argument three, the Book of Mormon was plagiarized from other books. Other critics offered a different line of attack, namely that Joseph Smith plagiarized the Book of Mormon, at least its historical content from other existing books. One such theory alleged that Joseph Smith copied from the Solomon Spalding Manuscript, an unpublished manuscript written about 1812 by a man named Solomon Spalding who had once been a Protestant minister. It is a fictional account of ancient Romans who were sailing for England but were blown off course 
and landed in North America. When the critics were asked to produce the manuscript for comparison with the Book of Mormon, they conveniently claimed it was lost. However, with the passage of time, the manuscript was found in 1884 by a Mr. L.L. Rice. He found the alleged smoking gun in the personal historical papers of one of the very critics who claimed the manuscript was lost. Knowing of its alleged connection to the Book of Mormon, Mr. Rice, a Mr. James Fairchild, and others, none of whom were members of the LDS Church, reviewed it and concluded, quote, We compared it with the Book of Mormon and could detect no resemblance between the two in general or in detail, end of quote. When I was in my 20s, I saw a notice from the Church History Department which stated that a copy of the Solomon Spalding Manuscript could be purchased for a dollar. I ordered a copy and likewise found no meaningful relationship whatsoever between the two books. With the demise of this argument, critics alleged that the supposed source for the Book of Mormon was another book titled View of the Hebrews, written by Ethan Smith in 1823. This book was an attempt to prove that the Native Americans were descendants of the lost ten tribes of Israel. In essence, the critics claimed that this was the historical basis for the Book of Mormon. There is a simple test, however, to determine if the Book of Mormon was copied from View of the Hebrews. Simply compare the two books and decide for yourself. With complete academic honesty, B.H. Roberts, one of the leading scholars of the Church, listed some possible parallels between the two books, but then reached this conclusion. I am taking the position that our faith is not only unshaken but unshakable in the Book of Mormon, and therefore we can look without fear upon all that can be said against it. Shortly before his death, Roberts further declared, Ethan Smith played no part in the formation of the Book of Mormon. I too have read View of the Hebrews and the Book of Mormon. Suffice it to say, these two books have totally different objectives and writing styles. For example, the Book of Mormon's principal focus is to testify of Jesus Christ and his doctrine. Accordingly, the historical setting is not the focus, but rather the background music that gives context and emphasis to the doctrine. The principal focus, however, for view of the Hebrews is to historically connect the Native Americans to the ancient Hebrews. In addition, view of the Hebrews is a series of independent quotes and purported evidences to prove its theory. On the other hand, the Book of Mormon is a cohesive narrative, a story of families and prophets who struggled to live God's word. The purpose and style of these two books is most disparate. Any honest reader can determine that for himself. Argument four, Joseph Smith suffered from a mental illness. Those who advance this argument allege that such mental disorders bestowed upon Joseph Smith additional powers and skills that enabled him to write what he could not otherwise have written on his own. In 1931, Harry Beardsley wrote, The Book of Mormon is the product of a mind characterized by the symptoms of the most prevalent of mental diseases of adolescence, dementia praecox, sometimes referred to as schizophrenia. 
There are fatal defects, however, with such an argument. First, there is no credible evidence that Joseph Smith had any form of mental illness. Second, there is no substantiating evidence that such physical or mental conditions magically bestow upon an untrained writer such as Joseph Smith the ability to instantly become a skilled writer. And third, the book is not characteristic of the mentally ill. Even Fawn Brody, an avid critic of Joseph Smith, acknowledged this latter fact. Recent critics who insist that Joseph Smith suffered from delusions have ignored in the Book of Mormon contrary evidence difficult to override. Its very coherence belies their claims. Its structure shows elaborate design. Its narrative is spun coherently, and it demonstrates throughout a unity of purpose. As you would expect, these arguments that Joseph Smith suffered from a mental illness never got much traction. Argument five, Joseph Smith was a creative genius who, shaped by his environment, wrote the Book of Mormon. This argument has become a principal one used by many, if not most, critics today. It is a 180-degree turnabout from the premise of earlier critics, namely that Joseph Smith was illiterate, ignorant, and incapable of writing such a work on his own. In fact, we've come full circle. Back to the same argument originally made by Alexander Campbell in 1831, except that now Joseph Smith is considered brilliant rather than ignorant. Von Brody, perhaps the chief proponent of this argument, opined that Joseph Smith, the unschooled farm boy, was a creative genius who, fashioned by his environment and the influence of local history books and resources, personally wrote the Book of Mormon. Remarkably, Fawn Brody wrote, Never having written a lore of fiction, Joseph Smith laid out for himself a task that would have given the most experienced novelist pause. But possibly because of his inexperience, he plunged into the story. When one contemplates that assertion, it is nothing short of mind-boggling. Was it this same inexperience that helped him create hundreds of names, weave them into the most complex set of events, and then thread them together in a harmonious story resplendent with profound doctrinal insights? By her very acknowledgment of Joseph's inexperience, she has magnified the improbability of Joseph writing this monumental work on his own. Nonetheless, Others have bought into this argument, lock, stock, and barrel. Why? Because they have nowhere else to go except admit that Joseph Smith translated it by the gift and power of God, a place they desperately do not want to go. These latter, latter critics have added one more ingredient to the mix. Joseph Smith, they said, besides being a genius, was suffering from narcissistic personality disorder or disassociative disorder, or depression. Here we are, back again to the mental disorder theories that proved so ineffective in the past. In order to account for the history of the Book of Mormon, these critics claim that Joseph Smith must have read or been conversant with a staggering number of books or ideas related to them. In fact, one author suggested Joseph may have read or gleaned information from over 30 books 
in nearby libraries in order to gather necessary information about the Native Americans. The claim is then made that these books or discussion of the same in newspapers or conversations became the basis for the historical narrative in the Book of Mormon. How might one counter this argument? Here is a list of questions an honest seeker of truth might raise. Is there a single reference, just one, in Joseph Smith's journals or written correspondence suggesting he might have read or had conversations concerning any of these historical sources before translating the Book of Mormon? No. Is there any evidence he visited the libraries where these books were supposedly located? No. Did Emma Smith, who was married to him, ever comment that he referred to any of these books before the Book of Mormon was translated? No. Is there any record that he had any of these books present when he translated the Book of Mormon? No. How many no's does it take to expose the critic's argument as pure speculation, nothing more than a sandcastle that comes crashing down when the first wave of honest questions appear on the scene? Does the critic expect us to believe that Joseph Smith searched out and studied all these resources on Native American life, inhaled the related conversations on the topic, winnowed out the irrelevant, organized the remainder into an intricate story involving hundreds of characters, numerous locations, detailed war strategies, and then that he dictated it with perfect recollection, without any notes whatsoever, no outline, no three-by-five cards, nothing, a fact acknowledged even among the critics. And during it all, no one remembers him going to these libraries, bringing any such books home, having any conversation concerning this research, or making any diary entries to the same. Where, I ask you, is the hard evidence? Even if Joseph obtained historical facts from local libraries or community conversations for which there is no substantiating evidence, the real issue still remains. Where did he get the deep and expansive doctrine taught in the Book of Mormon, much of which doctrine is contrary to the religious beliefs of his time? For example, contemporary Christianity taught that the fall was a negative not a positive step forward as taught in the Book of Mormon. Likewise, contrary to contemporary beliefs, the Book of Mormon refers to a premortal existence in Alma 13 and to a postmortal spirit world in Alma 40. Where did Joseph Smith get these profound doctrinal truths that were in fact contrary to the prevailing doctrinal teachings of his time? Where did he get the stunning sermon on faith in Alma 32? or one of the greatest sermons ever recorded in all scripture on the Savior's atonement as delivered by King Benjamin, or the allegory of the olive tree with all its complexity and doctrinal richness. When I read this allegory, I have to map it out to follow its intricacies. Are we supposed to believe that Joseph Smith just dictated these sermons off the top of his head with no notes whatsoever? The doctrinal truths taught in the Book of Mormon are an overwhelming evidence of its divine authenticity. Nephi prophesied that in our day an exceeding great many would stumble in finding the truth. Why? Because of the many plain and precious things which have been taken out of the Bible. 
Here are but two examples of plain and precious doctrinal truths that were clarified or restored in the Book of Mormon. First, baptism. Much of the Christian world debates whether or not baptism is essential for salvation. They stumble over this issue. I read but one of the many scriptures on this subject from the Book of Mormon. God commandeth all men that they must repent and be baptized in his name, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. Should there be any debate about the necessity of baptism after that scripture? The Book of Mormon makes clear that which is unclear to much of the Christian world. The majority of the Christian world embraces sprinkling and pouring as legitimate modes of baptism. The Savior himself addressed this issue in the Book of Mormon. Then shall ye immerse them in the water and come forth again out of the water. What is ambiguous for many is crystal clear in the Book of Mormon. Must one be baptized by authority or is sincerity sufficient? Do we make covenants at the time of baptism? And if so, what are those covenants? Should infants be baptized? Again and again, the Book of Mormon comes to the rescue, giving answers and restoring many plain and precious truths about baptism that were distorted or lost during the apostasy. How did Joseph Smith know all these answers when the rest of the Christian world was so confused? Because he received them by revelation from God as he translated the Book of Mormon. Second, what about Christ's atonement, the central doctrine of all Christianity? The clarity and expansiveness of this doctrine as taught in the Book of Mormon is beyond honest dispute. The Old and New Testament have some scattered doctrinal gems on the atonement, which we greatly appreciate and benefit from. But the Book of Mormon has numerous sermons, entire masterpieces on the subject, for example, Second Nephi 2 is a mind-expanding sermon on the relationship between the fall and Christ's atonement. While the rest of the Christian world believes the fall was a step backward, in man's progress, Lehi teaches us the truth, that the fall coupled with the atonement is a giant step forward. Second Nephi 9 introduces for the first time the phrase an infinite atonement, revealing the expansiveness, scope, and depth of Christ's saving power. Mosiah 2-5 is King Benjamin's sermon. He gives insights about the depth of Christ's suffering, the retroactive as well as prospective nature of Christ's atonement, and his power to remove our guilt as well as our sins. Alma 7 explains that the Savior suffered not only for our sins, but also for our pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. 3 Nephi 11 is the most powerful witness we have of the resurrected Lord as 2,500 believers consisting of men, women, and children came forth and thrust their hands into his side, felt the prints of the nails in his hands and feet, and did know of a surety and did bear record that he was the Son of God. Who can read that account and not feel the witness of the Spirit testifying of its truthfulness? The Bible teaches us that through the atonement, Christ can make us clean. Moroni chapter 10 teaches us that through the atonement, Christ can also make us perfect. Does anyone honestly believe that Joseph Smith somehow invented these profound doctrines with their compelling powers of reason, their mind-expanding insights, and language that is divinely eloquent? 
If these doctrines were the product of Joseph's creative mind, one might ask, were there no other creative geniuses in the 1800 years following Christ's ministry who could produce similar doctrines? The argument that Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon is simply counter to the realities of life. It is one thing to have creative ideas. It is quite another to put them into a complex but coherent and harmonious whole, inundated with majestic doctrinal truths, all done in a single draft in less than 90 days. Joseph Smith's wife, Emma, the person who knew him better than any other, confirms this conclusion. Joseph Smith, as a young man, can neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter, let alone dictate a book like the Book of Mormon. In response to the critics' arguments as to the origin of the Book of Mormon, Hugh Nibley published the following parable. A young man once long ago claimed that he had found a large diamond in his field as he was plowing. He put the stone on display to the public free of charge, and everyone took sides. A psychologist showed by citing some famous case studies that the young man was suffering from a well-known form of delusion. An historian showed that other men have also claimed to have found diamonds in the fields and been deceived. A geologist proved that there were no diamonds in the area, but only quartz. When asked to inspect the stone himself, the geologist declined with a weary, tolerant smile and a kindly shake of his head. A sociologist showed that only three out of 177 florist assistants in four major cities believed the stone was genuine. A clergyman wrote a book to show it was not the young man, but someone else who'd found the stone. Finally, an indignant jeweler pointed out that since the stone was still available for examination, the answer to the question of whether it was a diamond or not had absolutely nothing to do with who found it or whether the finder was honest or sane, or who believed him, or whether he would know a diamond from a brick, but was to be answered simply and solely by putting the stone to certain well-known tests for diamonds. Experts on diamonds were called in. Some of them declared it genuine. The others made nervous jokes about it and declared that they could not very well jeopardize their dignity and reputations by appearing to take the thing too seriously. To hide the bad impression thus made, someone came out with the theory that the stone was really a synthetic diamond, very skillfully made, but a fake just the same. The objection to this is that the production of a good synthetic diamond in that day and age would have been an even more remarkable feat than the finding of a real one. To suggest that Joseph Smith, a farm boy, with little formal education, produced a synthetic work of God in 1829 that has baffled the brightest of critics for almost two centuries would be a more remarkable feat than the simple fact that he obtained the gold plates from an angel of God and translated them by the gift and power of God. What other evidence do we have that the Book of Mormon was a God-given translation, not a man-made creation? There are many evidences, but for the sake of time, I refer to but one because it is personal to me. Emma Smith gave the following testimony when speaking to her son. My belief is that the Book of Mormon is of divine authenticity. I have not the slightest doubt of it. 
I am satisfied that mo no man could have dictated the writing of the manuscripts unless he was inspired. For when acting as his scribe, your father would dictate to me hour after hour. And when returning after meals or after interruptions, he would at once begin where he had left off without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him. This was a usual thing for him to do. It would have been improbable that a learned man could do this. And for one so ignorant and unlearned as he was, it was simply impossible. This may seem insignificant to some, but to me it is astounding. For 34 years as a lawyer, I regularly dictated to my secretary. As I did so, I was often interrupted by a phone call or question. After such interruptions, I would invariably ask my secretary, where was I? But Joseph was not dictating or writing a new work. He was receiving revelation by the power of God and therefore did not need to ask, where am I? When all is said and done, Joseph Smith's explanation of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon is the only viable option on the table. And why? Because it is as true as true can be. If I were to ask my good Christian friends how they unquestionably know the Bible is the word of God, I do not believe they would cite archaeological discoveries or linguistic connections with ancient Hebrew or Greek as their prime evidence, but rather they would make reference to the Spirit. It always comes back to the Spirit. The very same Spirit that helps me know the Bible is true is the very same Spirit that helps me know the Book of Mormon is true. The Spirit is the decisive, determining factor. Not archaeology, not linguistics, not DNA, and certainly not the theories of man. The Spirit is the only witness that is sure and certain and infallible. As a boy of about 15 or 16, I was reading the story of the 2,000 sons of Helaman. I marveled at their bravery and the Lord's protecting hand. Then a voice came to my mind. That story is true. Since then, other confirmations have come. Why is it so important for you individually to gain a testimony of the Book of Mormon? Because if you do, it will become your personal iron rod. The midst of darkness may come. The unanswered questions arise. But through it all, you will have your iron rod to cling to, to keep you on the straight and narrow path that leads to eternal life. The Lord has promised that if we pray with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto us by the power of the Holy Ghost. If we want the truth that badly, if we are willing to pay that price and be unrelenting in that quest, the answer will eventually come. By that promised power of the Holy Ghost, I bear my personal witness that the Book of Mormon is God-given, that it is all it claims to be, a pure and powerful witness of Jesus Christ, his divinity, and his doctrine. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. 
Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.